Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. It's a beautiful day to gather together. This is a sacred day. This is a special day. We ought to see Sundays in this way. Uh, Sundays, in many ways, are the best days of the week because it's Resurrection Day. It is the day on which the early Christians gathered to celebrate their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and we continue that today. And we're thankful to be together with one another, worshiping our God and Father in heaven and lifting up the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. It all began with this question. Who is my neighbor? It's recorded on the pages of the Scriptures in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 29. It's asked of Jesus by an expert in the law of Moses. A lawyer is what my translation says stands up and asks very formally, who is my neighbor? But we are told in the context here that this lawyer is not genuinely seeking the truth. No, he is seeking to justify himself. So he doesn't really want to know what Jesus thinks. He is not a truth seeker. He wants to justify himself. He wants to trap Jesus, ensnare him. What he's really asking here is... Who is a non-neighbor? Who is not my neighbor? Who do I not have to love? Jesus, I want you to rule some people out for me. I want you to set some limits to what neighbor means. You see, I want to follow the law very carefully. I want to be obedient to God's law. But it's impossible for me to view everybody as a neighbor, right? It's impossible for me to love everybody. So you tell me who's in, who's out. You tell me who's a neighbor, who's not. Who do I have to love and who can I leave out? That's the question here. And it actually begins, the scene begins back in chapter 10, verse 25, when the lawyer asks first, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's how it begins, with that question. And that is a good question. And it's asked several times in the New Testament. It's asked by who we call the rich young ruler, who stood up and he said, good teacher, he respected Jesus, he wanted to know the truth. Now, it didn't turn out so well, and he was not able to follow Jesus. The the barrier of riches got in his way, but he really wanted to know the answer to that question. Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? As you know, it was asked in Pentecost, worded there, what shall we do, brothers? But the implication is, what shall we do to be saved? when they're presented with the gospel and the death of Jesus in their hand in that. They want to know, what can we do to make this right? And then the Philippian jailer in that city where Paul was imprisoned, a colony of Rome, the Lord provides an earthquake for Paul to escape and all the doors swing open and the Philippian jailer decides, I am going to take my life. I'm going to fall on my sword because that'll be better than what the Roman authorities do to me. But Paul says, don't do it, don't do it. And the Philippian jailer says, he sees the power of God all before him and and what God accomplished. And he says, what shall I do to, to get in on the power that you experience? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to be saved? It's a good question. But we already know that the lawyer has impure motives. He is not asking this question honestly. He's putting Jesus to the test. That is what the text says. And so Jesus says to him, well, what's written in the law? What do you, how do you read it? 
The law is the definitive revelation of God. And the lawyer answered with what are the two greatest commands as recognized by the Jewish authorities and by Jesus himself. Love God. Love your neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the lawyer says, and Jesus says, well, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And that's when the lawyer says, but, but wait a second, who is my neighbor? I mean, who exactly am I to love as myself? He wants to know, if Jesus is going to either confirm or deny the files that are in the file cabinet of his brain. Because he's got all these files in his brain, and he's got people in there that he classifies as neighbors, and there are also people in there he classifies as non-neighbors. So he's asking, Jesus, how do you define the term neighbor? What are the limitations that you would place on this term? Are Gentiles my neighbors? Surely not. Surely not outsiders. Surely not non-Jews. What about tax collectors, the most vile sinners that they are? Surely they are not my neighbors. What about those who don't share my views exactly? What about those who don't respect the law of Moses like I do? Surely they are not my neighbors. And what about those mixed bread Samaritans? half Jew, half Gentile that live just to the north. Surely those nasty people are not my neighbors. The lawyer wants to know, would you classify these as neighbors, Jesus? And before we kick the lawyer around a little too much, I think we ought to admit to ourselves that sometimes we think it would be nice if Jesus would tell us who and who not to love. It would be neater that way, wouldn't it? It would be cleaner. It would be easier. And so we say, Jesus, please tell me who I absolutely have to love in order to fulfill this commandment to love my neighbor. I mean, because we want to do right by God and we want to follow his word. So tell me who's in, who's out. Because everybody, that's just too many. I can't be neighbors with everybody. I can't love everybody. That's impossible. I have a hard enough time loving my family and friends and church family. Those people, they are tough to love. I'm doing a good job if I can love those people that I go to church with, all 350, 400 of them. I simply can't be expected to love those who are different than me. And even more so, those who are sinning, those who live wrongly, I just don't have enough space in my heart. I don't have enough power within myself, to view everybody as a neighbor. To love everybody as I love myself. So Jesus, tell me, who is my neighbor? And Jesus responds with a story, as you might imagine. Because we are going through a series on the stories or the parables of Jesus. And Jesus responds with what might be his most famous story. His most famous story. Parable, and it's a story that does so much more than simply answers this question, who is my neighbor? I want you to look at this story with me. It begins in verse 30 of Luke chapter 10. Jesus replied to this question 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this literally, quite literally, would have been down. Jerusalem was well above sea level. Jericho well below. The descent was about 3,200 feet along a narrow, rocky, 18-mile route. So it's about the same distance as from Winchester to Tullahoma, from Jerusalem to Jericho. This man is traveling this rocky, curvy path filled with hiding places and caves, and lo and behold, he falls among robbers. This was a popular spot for robbers to hang out and look for victims. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, and they left him half dead. So this guy is in dire straits. Serious condition along the side of the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. A man of the cloth. A godly man, surely. A priest was going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He passed by on the other side of the road. He got as far away from this poor guy as he possibly could in order to avoid him. I wonder what this lawyer thought, this Pharisee, because there is some indication there was a little bit of tension between the Pharisees, the the experts in the law, and those who fulfilled priestly functions. So it's possible that this lawyer thought to himself at this juncture in the story, well, that's just like a priest. That's just like a priest to walk on by. He's just concerned with fulfilling his duties in the temple. He's not all that concerned with helping a fellow person. Yeah, a priest would do that. Hmm. And then Jesus continues, and then a Levite. These were the people who assisted the priests. And probably traveling to and fro from Jericho to Jerusalem and back, they were going up to the temple to perform their duties in the temple of the holy city of Jerusalem. So likewise, a Levite, maybe he'll help help out the guy. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side as well. Ignored him just like the priest. So what's the law you're thinking at this point? He's probably thinking, okay, priest, Levite, the next person to come by, he'll be a Pharisee like me. He'll be an expert in the law. He'll be somebody who respects God's word. And he'll help that poor old chap. But you know who comes by next? You know, because you know the story. It, but this guy would have been blindsided. Listen, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, so he had somewhere to go someplace to be, he was journeying along toward a destination, came to where this man was who'd been beaten within an inch of his life, and when he saw him, he didn't pass by on the other side like the priest and the Levite. He looked at him, and he had compassion on him. And the lawyer is thinking, what? A Samaritan? One of those lousy, low-down Samaritans? It was unthinkable for a Samaritan to help a Jew, and vice versa for a Jew to help a Samaritan? Do you remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus is traveling from Judea north to Galilee and the text tells us that he goes through Samaria? 
Now, he goes through Samaria partly because it's the fastest route, but there were some strict Jews in order to avoid being defiled by going through Samaritan territory that would take the long way around and cross over the River Jordan in order to go north just so they wouldn't have to go through the land where the Samaritans lived and walked. That's how little they thought of the Samaritans. These people who for centuries had mixed marriages with with outsiders. They were part Gentile, part Jew, reviled by both Jews and Gentiles. Jesus, the text tells us, went through Samaria. And he encounters a Samaritan woman at the well. And Jesus says, could you give me a drink? And the, you remember what the Samaritan woman says? She says, what are you, a Jewish man, asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Jews and Samaritans don't interact. Jews and Samaritans don't help one another. The text tells us they had no dealings with one another. It's really interesting that we call this story the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because Good Samaritan to a Jew would be an oxymoron. Two words that are polar opposites placed together like jumbo shrimp or open secret or brief sermon. Oxymoron. I was hoping that would catch on. Good Samaritan? They would be appalled by such a thought. But, you know, because of 2,000 years of use, now, Good Samaritan is synonymous with somebody who does good deeds and, and goes about being kind to their neighbors. This does not pack the same punch for us as it did to them in Jesus' day. So, if Jesus told this parable today, I'm wondering how he would tell it. I'm wondering how he would tell it in order to really break through our barriers and strike at our hearts. Maybe he would tell it like this. A disheveled family was stranded by the side of the highway, right out here, right down from our church building one Sunday morning. They were in obvious distress. The mother was sitting on the grass. There was a Walmart sack with a few clothes off to her side. Hair unbrushed, clothes dirty, a glaze look in her eyes in her lap a smelly crying baby and only a diaper the father he was unshaved a ratty t-shirt jeans that were too big for him a look of despair on his face as he tries to corral two other young children by the busy highway beside them a rundown car that had obviously run its course given up the ghost down the road came a car driven by a local pastor he was on his way to church and though the family, the father of the family waved frantically, tried to flag him down, the pastor, he had a sermon to preach. He couldn't hold up his congregation. So he acted as though he didn't see them. He kept his eyes ahead on the road and kept going. Soon came another car, and again the father waved furiously. This one was driven by the president of the Rotary Club. But he was on his way to Nashville for a statewide meeting of other Rotary presidents. And he was late. And so he too acted as though he didn't see them. And he kept his eyes straight on the road ahead. The next man that came by in a car. He looked over and he saw this family stranded on the side of the road. And he had compassion on them. 
And he stopped and he invited them into his own car so he could take them for help. And this man was a member of the Winchester Church of Christ. He was an elder. He was a deacon. He was somebody who sits out in the pews. Is that the way Jesus would end the story? That's what we think he's going to end with. That's what we hope he'll conclude with. No. What would Jesus do here? The man who had compassion on the family was an outspoken local atheist who had never been to church in his life. And if you're confused right now, if you're offended by that, then you know exactly how the lawyer felt standing there listening to the story of Jesus. It is the least likely person who would stop and have compassion. Somebody who doesn't even believe in God. Somebody who speaks out about the Christian faith. He's the hero of the story. That is the effect on the hearers that day when Jesus tells this story. And he's trying to get through to the lawyer's head and to his heart and to say, listen guy, You've got these neat little systems, these labels, and they have allowed you to love within limits. And I'm going to break through those. And we label people too. We have all sorts of labels. We've got files for people in the filing cabinets of our brains. In fact, every time we meet somebody, we open up a new file on them. Or we place them in an an existing file. Well, I've got some examples here today. Here's a file that many of us have in our heads. This one says, Democrats. Mmm, somebody said. Democrats. Or as we deridingly say, those liberals. Surely they can't be my neighbor. They're the ones who are causing so much damage to this country. They're the reason our country's going down the tube, those liberals. Surely Jesus has not called me to love them as I love myself. On the other side of the aisle, you have people who say, those Republicans, hmm, it's those conservatives. They're the reason this country is in dire straits. And maybe some of us have even said, or we've heard other people say, you can't be a Christian and be a Republican. You can't be a Christian and be a Democrat, a liberal or a conservative. Those two, those are, they don't go together. It's like oil and water. And surely these files don't fit into the bigger file of neighbor. Surely Jesus has not called me to love these people as I love myself. Now, going in a little bit of a different direction, what about this? What about this? People who have wronged me. Mm. I can't believe I didn't hear a mm from that one. People who have wronged me. People who have spoken ill of me. People who have gossiped about me. People who have told lies behind my back. What about people who have wronged my children? Hmm, now that. People who've done wrong to my children, who've made fun of them, who've talked down to them, who've been cruel to them. Oh, Jesus, surely not them. Surely I am not called to love them. 
What about, here's a term that some of us, maybe not some of you, but people throw around. Snowflakes. We got a bunch of snowflakes in this country, and if you say something just a little bit politically incorrect, oh, they just melt down. And, and they just wilt and, and fall to the floor. And they're so highly offended by everything. And it's mostly people from my generation, it's young people, that we call it's a bunch of snowflakes. Surely snowflakes are not my neighbors. What about, what about those rednecks? <laughs> what about them? Now some of, us might, some of us might wear that title proudly, I don't know. <laughs> I thought I might have gotten an amen in here this morning. It's those rednecks. You hear people say, they're just a bunch of rednecks. And with one flick of the wrist, we dismiss a whole group of people. All these files in our brains. And I could share many more with you. We might have a file for feminists, NRA members, ACLU members, the alt-right Black Lives Matter activists, the fake news media, flyover country hicks, foreigners, coastal elites, blue collar, white collar. We got a file opened up on everybody. And in the parable, Jesus takes sticks of dynamite and he places them among all the labels in the brain of that lawyer and he blows it up. He blows it up. By, in the story, making the enemy the hero. He makes the least likely person in the story the neighbor. And if you know the story well, you know at the end when Jesus says, okay, who acted like a neighbor? Who was a neighbor? This lawyer can't even bring himself to speak the word Samaritan. He says, it's the one who had mercy on him. And I've always imagined that he said that through gritted teeth. Or maybe he looked down and said, it's the one who had mercy on him. You see, Jesus uses this story to expose not just his smug self-righteousness, but ours. He uses this story to expose our, the hatred in our hearts and the prejudice and to show that labels, we use labels as barriers to loving other people. Because as long as I can see somebody else as fitting into one of these files, as long as I can view them as them or as the other, then I feel I'm exempt from loving them. And you may say, Joseph, but some of the people in those files do some terrible things and they stand against what God stands for in His Word. And I would say to you, love is not contingent on the way other people behave and on the way that they treat us. If that were the case, we would still be dead in our sins if that's what love meant. We've got to open up new files on people. In fact, Jesus would have us take all these files, all the files in our brains, and replace the word on each, the label on each and every one with just one label. And that label is neighbor. It's neighbor. Everyone is a neighbor to love, Jesus says in the story because you cannot be kind and compassionate to someone as the bible commands us to do if you do not love them you cannot help 
bring someone to Jesus Christ, you, not, you cannot assist in the salvation of their soul if you do not love them. And you say, but the people in these files, I just can't love them. Do you know what they stand for? Do you know the kinds of things that they do? Do you know the cruelty that they have shown to me and my family? I don't have enough power to love these people on my own. I don't have enough space in my heart. I just can't. And you're right. You can't by your own strength. But you can by the power of God's Holy Spirit. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells within you and it will give you the strength that you need to call everybody and to treat everybody like a neighbor. So Jesus answers this question, who is my neighbor? But what he also does is he suggests an even better question. And the better question is, how can I be a neighbor? That's the better question that Jesus suggests in this story. Biblically speaking, being a neighbor is less how you feel about someone than what you do for them. It's less how you feel than what you do. And if you don't feel loving towards someone, if you don't feel like a neighbor, then start acting like a neighbor and eventually you'll feel like one. We need to act our way into doing. We need to act better than we feel. And eventually we'll get there. The Bible doesn't tell us what love feels like. It shows us what love looks like and every time it looks like service. Listen to how much time is dedicated in the parable to the description of what the Samaritan did for the poor old guy on the side of the road who was destined to die. Listen. He went to him and he bound up his wounds and he poured oil and wine on them. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the inn. So it doesn't just stop. He doesn't just drop them off at the end. At the inn, he goes a step further and he gives two denarii. That's two, two days wages worth of money. Gives them to the innkeeper, says, take care of them. I'll, whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. The man picked up the family off the side of the road and he took them up to one of the local inns and he put them up for a week and he helped the father rent a car so he could drive around town and look for work and he brought groceries over to the motel room so the mother and the children wouldn't go hungry and he took the mother and the children up to Walmart so they could buy a few clean clothes To this lawyer that Jesus is telling the story, almsgiving, that was the big thing for the Pharisees. They thought, if I give to the poor, I am exempt from having to serve in other ways. But Jesus is saying here, that doesn't cut it. You've got to get close. You've got to get involved. You can't just serve and love your neighbor from a distance. So get down to the nitty gritty and get your hands dirty in service to others. That is how you can be a neighbor. And to us, he says, go and do likewise. The question is, how can I be a neighbor this week to those around me? If this morning you would like to follow Jesus, if you want to dedicate your life to him, submit your existence to the Father above, through confessing the name of Christ, repenting of your sins, and being baptized, 
so that your sins can be washed away, we invite you to come and make that decision this morning. If you're struggling with anything and you need to confess sin or you need the prayers of this church body, we encourage you to do that as well. Also, we always have two elders in the conference room after worship every Sunday. If there's anybody who just needs to talk, if you're struggling with something, if you need the prayers of our shepherds, please take advantage of that. We sing a song every week, and we call it the Song of Invitation. And it's not the elder's invitation, it's not Joseph's invitation, it's the Lord's invitation to come and experience life, abundant here and everlasting in the life to come. And you can only do so through Jesus Christ. Would you like to this morning? We encourage you to as we stand and sing.